different would it be? Players growing third on sending field to the tree. Anything is fair game, even Kike's dirty pants. And maybe if you're lucky, we'll cold call by the chance. You never know precisely where it's gonna go. By definition, effectively wild. Hello and welcome to episode 1983 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm laughing because I goofed this the first time. It didn't, didn't though. I, I almost tripped at the finish line, but I, I feel like I got through, you know. This is how I am. USA! USA! Wow. USA! That's very yeah. loud. That's quite loud. So how you are is loud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a weekend at the WBC. Yeah. That was a fun time. I'm not an unpatriotic person, but I'm also not someone who expresses my patriotism through sporting events, mm. typically, because what does it really prove about a country right. to win a single elimination baseball game in a two-week baseball tournament or any other sporting event, for that yeah. matter? That said... Pretty exciting baseball this weekend for old Team USA. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that uh, there there were some potential low lows, um, mm-hmm. but then there were uh, then there were grand slams, so it didn't it didn't matter. <laughs> those those low lows didn't come back to to manifest, even though yeah. oh, it looked like they might. And I was mostly just enjoying the environment and the yeah. energy in those games, like when Team USA went down in the quarterfinal. After Luisa Rice hit two homers in a game for the first time, at least yeah. since he's been a big leaker, I was like, all right, yeah, good job, Team Venezuela. I have to hand it to you guys, right? Yeah. So I was still sort of, I wasn't really down in the dumps about the fact that Team USA was losing at that point, but then the comeback was incredible. So, I mean, that was absolutely a playoff atmosphere on a Saturday in mid-March, which was great. So yeah. I was editing our Patreon bonus pod, which we recorded on Saturday, and I was not making great time because because I was so absorbed in that back and forth contest. That was just a great advertisement for the WBC. Yeah, it was a great amount of fun. It, would it be rude to pick this net? Would it be rude no. to pick a net? They feel won, free. so uh, it's especially not rude. Look, um, I don't want to make anybody feel bad. I don't want to um, say that anybody is uh, bad at managing a baseball team. Because, <laughs> you know, like I'd be bad at managing a baseball team. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. I, I feel like uh, I, I feel like maybe we could have uh, folks with with more or in some cases any like coaching experience in the in the dugout. Like we've talked in in these proceedings mm-hmm. about how um, one of the projects for Team USA, if they want to really continue to advance the the WBC as a tournament and they're standing within it, is to think about how to attract. Um, deeper starting pitching, and we say that with no disrespect intended to to Lance Lynn or Adam Wainwright <laughs> or anyone else, but like that, you know, our very best are not represented in, on that side. I know that the the bullpen has taken some uh, offense to the suggestion that the pitching is bad. So I will be specific and say that like the starting pitching could probably improve. Also, it would be nice to have a long man in the bullpen. But mm-hmm. I get like it's fun to see to see some guys, to remember some guys in the dugout. But why was Daniel Bard in that game for so long? You know, like, <laughs> he was in there, Ben, he was in there for so long. And yes. that was bad for him. It was bad for Jose Altuve. 
who we should note is going to be out for eight to 10 weeks with a, mm-hmm. a broken thumb. Yep. Um, and uh, I, I, um, I hated being forced to feel the way I did that day <laughs> because <laughs> I was simultaneously filled with great concern for the Venezuelan hitters because Daniel Barr clearly had no idea where the ball was going. And also I w- worried, and this is not a thought unique to me, like, are we watching him redevelop the yips? Right. Like, are mm-hmm. we seeing that? And and so why are you putting, uh, Marjorie, why are you putting him in that spot? Like, don't, don't do that. Also, a- Andy Pettit, go out there and buy some time for uh, a reliever to get warmed up. Why are you the, go out. <laughs> so I think that there are probably places on that staff where having sort of a more ceremonial uh, understanding of the coaching role is probably fine. Like, I don't say this in any way to disrespect Ken Griffey Jr. I'm sure that he can tell any quality a hitter something about hitting that he doesn't know. But, like, what does Mike Trout need to know about hitting right now? You know? Well, I mean, he might need to know some stuff about hitting. But you know what I mean? Like, uh, these guys, they don't want to hit. But, like, there's, um, I think in the, the pitching coach role, you need, like, and for the manager, I'm just saying, like, Daniel Barr shouldn't have been out there that long. And it seemed like an obviously bad idea. And sometimes Twitter forms a consensus around something and then Twitter is wrong because, you know, it's Twitter. But I think we were right about that one where it was like, why is Daniel Bart still here? Why is he still, why is no one warming up? Why did it take so long? You know, um, and you, you're you in a loosier, goosier rules environment than, than uh, spring training. So I think it's time for a slow walk to the mound for a chat and then a mm-hmm. slow walk back it just seemed like um it could have cost them the game and it it very nearly did until they were rescued by um turner so i think that in future wbcs like i understand that big league managers are famously kind of busy this time of year right um but what if what if we looked at the WBC, one of the ways that we credentialize the WBC is like, here's this place that is a proving ground for like your best young double and triple A managers. Like, what if this is a place where someone could showcase their ability even briefly on their way to a managerial role? I know those guys are busy too. You know, minor league spring training is going on, but I think that there's probably an opportunity for some guys who are more actively Involved in like coaching, we should turn off the no smoking sign and bring back Jim Leland. It worked out well last time. You know what? As many cigs as he needs, and if he wants to smoke <laughs> them in the dugout, just like it's not ideal. You smoke know, him if he got him, yeah. But, uh, if if we need to send him a carton, it seems like it's not my business. You know what he <laughs> he, he gets to decide. I mean, he, it's bad to to smoke, and it's really bad to smoke inside. But um, but yeah, like. Just give him as many six as he needs is really what I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that you're right. Having someone without managerial experience maybe is not ideal. I could see where throwing a minor league manager out there who has not been a big leaguer with the USWBC roster, which is composed largely of veteran MLB players, maybe there could be a, a bit of a question about just commanding the respect of that group from day one, right? Like sure. if you're Andy Pettit, if you're Ken 
Ted Griffey Jr. Sure. You have a, a presence to you, right? Ken Rosenthal wrote a story about the mound visit that Andy Pettit made in the first inning of the semifinal game when Adam Wainwright got in all that trouble with a bunch of infield hits. It was a good story about how Wainwright said it was helpful to hear from someone else what he was already telling himself about settling down. Maybe a bit of a breather helped, but he's Adam Wainwright. He's 41 years old. He's pitched in 29 postseason games. He's not going to get rattled by that moment. So, okay, Pettit did what he was supposed to do. But as you said, maybe there's not all that much coaching that really actually needs to be done in the WBC. But there is some managing that needs to be done. And arguably, it might be a more difficult managing assignment because of all of the restrictions, right? And all the ways that Mark DeRose's hands are tied behind his back because of pitch limits, because of mandates from every player's team saying they can't pitch on back-to-back days or whatever it is. So there are a ton of variables to consider there. And there are probably a lot of people who don't want that job. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people who do, but also it's got to be a big headache just to manage who's on the roster and people are dropping out and people are coming in and you have to recruit and you have to interview people and see whether they're really committed. And then if you fail, then there's going to be a stigma associated with that. And if you're busy with some big league gig or even minor league gig, then you might not want to be called away at that time. So I guess just the fact that DeRosa was a longtime big leaguer, so he's known to these players. He played in the WBC himself. He is on TV in the clubhouse all the time, so players know who he is, I guess. There's uh, something to be said for that. And, you know, people seem to think he's a smart guy and maybe uh, he will be a coach or manager someday. And some guys uh, flit in and out of being a TV personality and being in the game in in some more concrete way. But, yeah, there are probably moments like when everyone is talking about how this feels like the biggest game and the atmosphere is incredible and everything. And you have a rookie manager out there, then... Maybe it's it's not ideal, but it's a tough assignment. It's a tough assignment for sure, and and I don't think that um, having uh, like a whoever the consensus best manager in baseball is in that dugout isn't going to make other uh, you know MLB organizations more inclined to like send their starters. So I don't want to overstate the case here, but like also you know. Um, are you more inclined to feel enthusiastic about the usage if you're like, hey, uh, so you should obviously be pulling that guy. Why aren't you pulling that guy? And then he doesn't pull yeah. that guy. I don't mean to knock to rest. Like, I don't, I'm not saying he's not a, a smart guy. I don't know him at all. I mean, yeah, like, me I neither. Would yeah. never would never insult a pen man. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. Um, but I just think that, um, you know, we could, uh, we could perhaps impart more direct experience into that role. And I I think you're right that like part of it is a credentializing thing within the the dugout that they don't want someone who those players are going to be like, I'm not listening to you. But like, if you're, if you're in the bullpen of team USA, you feeling super great today? Like, (laughs) you know, No, I mean, it would be nice, of course, if he had the pick of the cream of the crop and had no bad options, right? And anyone he brought in would be a good choice because the best American pitchers were on the roster and that's not totally the case. Now, they're going up against teams where that's not totally the case either. I mean, Team Venezuela is bringing in Silvino Bracco to face Trey Turner, Mookie Betts and and Mike Trout. I mean, that's not exactly a lights out option 
either. So there's that. And Bard didn't have it, obviously. And yeah, given his history, it's uncomfortable and worrisome. And hopefully it was just a bout of normal wildness as opposed to something yips-ish. I think Altuve was the third batter he faced anyway, so he couldn't be pulled before then because of the three batter minimum. But then he stayed in for a while after yeah. that <laughs> and clearly was wild. So, yeah, that was not ideal. And it would help if there were better pitching on the roster. But also, I, I was kind of thinking, you know, there is a good back of the bullpen, at least. There's a weak bullpen underbelly as well, but you do at least have Devin Williams and Ryan Presley coming in, right, shutting the door. So that beats Silvino Bracco. But also... Maybe it's, in a sense, for the best, just from a competitive standpoint, that the U.S. doesn't have a pitching staff that is the equivalent of its lineup, because its lineup is so incredible. I mean, it's ridiculous that Trey Turner was batting ninth. Yeah. <laughs> he's now just, uh, he hits a home run every game or sometimes two, and he's your number nine hitter, and that is a reflection of the quality of that lineup. If the pitching staff were just as stacked if you had all of the best American pitchers on this team, too, I don't want to say the U.S. team would be unbeatable because there are other great teams, too. And if they had their best guys available, right. then that would help, too. And also, it's a, a format that lends itself to upsets, obviously. But maybe it's more fun to have less of a dream team situation where you have one team that is kind of head and shoulders above. I mean, right now, like, yeah, the U.S. can come back from any deficit with that lineup, but also it's not exactly a lights out staff and it does kind of make things more competitive, I think, than it would if their roster were just stuffed with all of the best available options, then they would be heavier favorites than they are. And there are ways in which I think the fact that the best players are not on that roster and then also DeRosa has to deal with all of these restrictions, that makes it feel a little less like the most legitimate tournament it could be, right? Like if all of the best players were playing and if you could kind of take the reins off a little bit, then it would feel more just no holds barred, like this is the absolute best baseball talent going up against each other. And so it does detract a little bit that there are so many no-shows and understandable absences, but also maybe it might be for the best in terms of actually producing a competitive tournament and keeping things close. It would be nice, I think, if uh, <laughs> if if there were some better options out there in the most important moments. But look, they made it. They squeaked by Venezuela. They blew out Cuba yeah. in the semi. And now they're into the final. And just the energy in that game, whether it was yeah. Jose Quijada on the Venezuelan side being super pumped after big outs or Trey Turner or Mike Trout was about as excited as I think we've ever seen Mike Trout because how often does he have reason to be super excited at Angels games? Like the gifts and the videos and the breakdowns of Team USA celebrating Turner's homer and all the quotes like Turner saying that it was the biggest homer of his career. Like he's had a lot of homers and played in a lot of playoff games. And he said that was the biggest hit of his career. And everyone was going on and on about the environment. Turner said, I'm always excited, but I just don't necessarily necessarily show it. It's the most I've ever yelled on a field. And DeRosa said, when Trey clipped that ball, honestly, I saw about 35 guys, including the coaches, kind of black out and lose their minds for a moment. 
Lance Lynn said, usually during the regular season, you're not jumping onto the field and doing stuff like that. When that happened, it was unbelievable. Turner said it was the loudest that he has ever heard at a baseball game, too. And, of course, the U.S. was almost like the visiting team in this scenario because more people in the stadium were cheering for Venezuela and then also for Cuba the next night. DeRosa said, being honest with you, it's one of the greatest games I've ever been a part of. The passion in this building was absolutely incredible. Turner said that Pete Alonso bat-flipped Turner's homer. So Alonzo was on the on-deck circle, and he bat-flipped just watching the homer. That was how excited he was. And Adam Wainwright said, I've pitched for a long time, and I've never had this much fun playing baseball. So these are pretty good endorsements and testimonials. Like maybe there's a little bit of evangelism going on here because it's needing to justify that this is worthwhile and also trying to persuade players who are not there perhaps to play in the future. So maybe they're going a little harder on just how great it is just to sort of send that message. Like Real Muto said, I can't believe anybody would rather stay in spring training than play in a game like that. So much pride on the line, so much fun. It was clear to both teams how much that game meant. And last quote, Adam Adovino said, Brady Singer was asking me what the playoffs are like. I was like, I don't even know if they're like this. That was the best atmosphere I've been in. It was just so fun to be a part of, even if we would have lost it. So hearing that kind of message come out of Team USA and also a lot of the other teams in the tournament, again, like we've been boosting it a bit because they're detractors to the tournament, but it's really fun. I'm done watching spring training at this point. Like I'm not really tuning in to watch spring training games and probably wouldn't be even if the WBC weren't going on. I was about to say, were you watching them before? Just like at the beginning, just because, hey, baseball's back, sort of, (laughs) right? And then even though they're the new rules and that's interesting to see how the implementation goes, I've kind of checked out on the Grapefruit and Cactus Leagues until opening day. But I'm totally dialed into the WBC. So, again, I echo my call to play this thing more often. Why are we depriving ourselves of this entertainment at this time of year? Yeah, I think that um, it has been even even with the injury stuff, which, you know, we don't want to downplay, again, the, the impact that's going to have to individual teams and players. But even with that, even with a, another high profile example of it, um, I think that this just has been a, a great success. Yeah, we're recording this shortly before the Japan-Mexico semifinals, so this will probably be posted after that game, and so we won't do any preview of that, but I'm excited even for that game, just to see Roki Sasaki going up against Patrick Sandoval in that Mexico lineup. That's going to be a ton of fun, and either way, I think the matchup will be fun for the final on Tuesday, U.S. versus Mexico, U.S. versus Japan, but got to say the potential for a Shohei Otani coming in to close out a game against Team USA on Tuesday, the potential for Otani facing Trout in that situation. No offense to Mexico. (laughs) I don't want to root against them, but boy, I would really like to see that. Yeah. It's going to be a good time no matter what. I, th- I think you're right that there are like individual matchups that I would perhaps enjoy the most um, were Japan to advance. I also, I mean, selfishly, because I just had to draw a line at being awake at three in the morning to watch <laughs> um, Samurai Japan play, like I would like another opportunity to watch that team. Yeah. So, um, you know, selfishly as someone who got to watch uh, Mexico both 
on TV and in person in Phoenix, um, if for no other reason than I'd get more more of Team Japan, I, I'm kind of pulling for them ever so slightly. But yeah, it's just been a it's just been a really great fun time. Yeah, and not to take anything away from Trey Turner's Homer, because uh, by all means, please put him on the stamps, uh, put him on the postage, <laughs> put him on the currency, whatever it takes. We've certainly had worse. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that was probably one of the worst pitches ever thrown. <laughs> I think the the pitch that he hit for the Grand Slam was an 0-2 pitch from Bracco that was just centered. I mean, yeah. it was middle maybe a little middle in yeah. 86 miles per hour just yeah. <laughs> the bpest of bp just down was, the dick <laughs> just yep. on o2 yep. and uh, again like you have uh, mookie betts and mike trout coming up next so it's not like you can pitch around anyone right. in this lineup but still <laughs> on o2 that was that was a bad miss but yeah you have to take advantage of bad misses if you're a good hitter and trey turner did oh yeah he he sure did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it sucks about Altuve, obviously. Yeah. That's a, a blow to the Astros. And look, I, I mean, Austin Nola got hit in a spring training game in the face, right? Yeah. Justin Turner got hit in the face, too. Uh, they're both okay, as yeah. uh, as okay as they could be, given that. But guys are constantly getting drilled in spring training games and in WBC games. That's going to happen. Bard obviously did not have his controller command, and it's unfortunate that there was a broken thumb there that's going to need surgery. But that is just another example of, yeah, this could happen wherever, whenever yeah. you're playing, really. Like, even with the Edwin Diaz injury, which was very fluky, yes. but you could also say, well, he was hopping up and down in a scrum and he wouldn't have been celebrating, most likely, in a spring training game in that manner. But again, like, there are all sorts of just freak injuries that happen all the time. Like, yep. Tony Gonsolin of the Dodgers, yeah. he sprained his ankle and is going to be out for the beginning of the year because he he was just like, I think, jogging off the field after pitcher's fielding practice yeah. and his foot just buckled. Like yeah. he, he wasn't even doing pitcher's fielding right. practice. Like the practice was over and yeah. he was just on his way off the field and he just lands on his foot wrong, yep. sprains his ankle and he's missing some time. Like yeah. that stuff happens. Yeah. So unless you're just going to mothball these guys, which look, I guess Byron Buxton this spring hasn't really been playing in games, right? He's yeah. uh, He's been like on backfield and, and training and getting in shape and everything, but not really playing in games. And I remember Ryan Zimmerman did that one spring. He just like didn't really play in games or didn't play much. And he was just kind of working out on the backfields and that sort of thing. And I think he started slow after that in the season. I don't know whether there was a connection there or not, but unless you do want to just uh, put people in bubble wrap basically and, and just say, you know, Go to the go to the cage, go to the bullpen, uh, work out, but you can't actually play, right. so that you can't put your foot down in a weird way and have what happened to Gavin Lux happen to you. Then you just have to accept a, a certain number of injuries, unfortunately. And the payoff here is huge, just in the amount of excitement that is generated and the attention. So, again, easy for me to say as a non-Astros or Mets fan, and not Edwin Diaz or Jose Altuve. But 
I don't think even they would necessarily say, I don't know what they would say. I don't want to put words in their mouths, but they were into this tournament too, you know? So I haven't heard a lot of players and participants saying, oh, this isn't worth it. We should do away with this thing. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to put words in their mouth. What do you work for a bar stool? Um, (laughs) Just got, I got got a mouthful of sass today, Ben. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're in the we're in the terrifying injury zone. All injuries are bad, right? Mm-hmm. All injuries are bad. We don't want any injuries at any time of year. Um, but you know, sometimes of year things will happen in baseball, and um, they inconvenience me personally in a way that they don't inconvenience other people. And I always feel weird complaining about them because my job is super cool, and I don't want people to think I'm like being a whiner. But this time of year, everyone's interests are aligned because if players get hurt. It's bad for them and it's bad for their teams. And it really disrupts the positional power ranking. So I just would like everyone to stay healthy and on their existing rosters for the next week and a half. And after that, if you want to trip or go hiking, I mean, still be careful because you got baseball to play. But, you know, it, it becomes a different kind of problem for me than the one that's uh, that's coming up. And and to all the team people listening, listen. No trades, okay? They don't they don't want to have to find a new place to live so close to the season. That's deeply rude. It's not about me or it's not just about me. It's it's about them and yes. them being human beings and needing to know where they're going to sleep and where they can get coffee in the morning. Don't be disruptive. You just hold on to them for a while, okay? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got that sorted out. <laughs> we had to change Austin Nola's blurb like uh, last night, but hey, it happened before we published, so, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> Well, next time we will get to talk about the remaining semifinal match and U.S. versus Japan or Mexico. So that'll be fun and we will enjoy the baseball in the meantime. I did wonder whether the Astros were going to go get, say, Jerickson Profire to make up for the absence of Altuve because they had been connected to Profire earlier in the winter before they signed Michael Brantley, mostly as outfield help, I think. And Profire has not played a lot of second base recently and does not seem to be very good at it. But also, given the uncertainty surrounding Brantley and Jordan and also the vacancy after Altuve went down. I, I kind of wondered maybe yeah. he'd be a fit there, but no, the Rockies struck and signed Jerickson Profar. <laughs> what a weird, <laughs> and, what a weird <laughs> Well, we will talk about the Rockies in a preview segment next week. We can discuss Profar then, but I guess uh, the Astros have David Hensley and they have Mauricio Dubon and I guess uh, they got some guys, so they'll be all right. All right, so we will do our two team previews today. We have the Yankees and the Nationals. The Yankees are projected for 90.1 wins, according to Fangraphs right now, with a 44% chance to win the division and an 83% chance to make the playoffs. The Nationals do not have such a great chance to make the playoffs. Unsurprisingly, they are projected for 65 wins with a... 0.0% chance to win the division. (laughs) So Fangraph's not saying that there's a chance, at least not rounding up to saying that there's a chance. There is some infinitesimal chance there that is too small to represent here. There's that. (laughs) They do have a 0.1% chance to make the playoffs, though. So (laughs) there's that, I guess. We will be back later in the episode for the Pass Blast and also for the trivia involving these two teams. So to refresh everyone's memory, the three trivia questions, as always, which franchise has a better head-to-head record against the other, the Yankees or the Nationals? And in this case, we're talking Nationals and Expos combined, so franchise history. And then the other question is, which hitter 
has the highest war, who has played for both the Yankees and either the Expos or the Nationals. Same for Pitcher, which Pitcher has the highest career war, who played for both of those franchises, and then who were the first hitter and pitcher to have played at some point for the Yankees and the Nationals slash Expos. So we will answer those questions a little later. Right now, we will take a brief break and we'll be back with Brendan Cuddy of The Athletic to preview the Yankees, followed by Jesse Doherty of The Washington Post to talk about the Nationals. Right, it is time to talk about the New York Yankees, and we are joined by Brendan Cuddy, who covers the Yankees for The Athletic. Brendan, welcome to the show. Guys, thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to this. Happy to have you. And I think before we preview this Yankee season, we almost have to review the last Yankee season, which was quite confounding. It was a tale of two seasons. I think the first half or so of the season was they're keeping pace with the 98 Yankees. The second half was, can they hold on or are they going to blow this thing? Because they were basically a 500 team, though some of the underlying numbers were better than that. But How do you make sense of what the Yankees were last season? Because it is largely the same roster. We will talk about some of the additions, but they brought back a whole lot of the 2022 teams. So you always have to figure out what that team was before you can understand what the 2023 team is. Right. So last season's team, it felt like in a lot of ways operated at best case scenario levels. No one was hurt until like May really. Uh, You know, everyone performed at such high level in the first half. You had all-star Jose Trevino looking amazing behind the plate, but putting together his best career offensive season. DJ LeMahieu was the machine that you expect him to be until he fell off in the second half due to injury. Aaron Judge has an historic season. Anthony Rizzo looks really good. They're able to skate by with poor performances from uh, Josh Donaldson and, and Aaron Hicks. But just really, all in all, in the first half, it, it couldn't have uh, gone better from a performance standpoint. And in the second half, the, the wheels kind of came off the bus in terms of a ton of injuries hitting them at once. John Carlos Stanton goes down. Mester Cortez talked about DJ LeMayhew. Anthony Rizzo's back started being a B-word. Like, it just, uh, a whole bunch of things uh, started going poorly uh, in the second half. And it kind of leaves you going into the season saying, hmm, This roster looks so much like last year's roster. What team is this? And I guess an unfortunate place that we could start and a continuation of that theme is with the injuries. So there were efforts made to reinforce parts of this roster. And, uh, you know, I don't think that we're looking at anything season ending when it comes to Rodon. But what is the latest on Carlos Rodon? He was their big offseason pitching uh, addition. And now he has a strained forearm and is going to miss the start of the regular season. So when do they expect him back? And before he got hurt, what were you seeing from him in camp? So right now, he's back to throwing, you know, light stuff. The Yankees hope that he's back mid-April. I think when it comes to an elbow, when it comes to a a forearm situation, when it comes to your latest $167 million investment, maybe take the, the 
forecast with a grain of salt and say if the Yankees are talking about mid-April, maybe aim for late April. Before you know, he went down, he really hadn't done a whole lot. There was just a bunch of backfields, uh, simulated games, just priming himself to get onto his first spring training game mound in the Grapefruit League. And then once he got there, he hurt himself. I mean, his velocity was down. He said that he felt it on one particular slider that he threw, and he got smacked around by the Tigers. Uh, so we really didn't get to see a whole lot from Rodon. You wonder, how did this happen now, right? Because you have a shutdown offseason, and you're just starting to ramp up, and now the forearm pops up? Whoa. Uh, this is an issue that Rodon dealt with last May with the Giants. Uh, man, uh, cardiobrachialis? That's not at all what it is. I, it's, it's some kind of uh, muscle in your upper forearm that Brian Cashman described as sounding like a dinosaur. So if you go look up what, <laughs> the arms of your forearm, sorry, the muscles of your forearm, and look for the one that sounds like a dinosaur, that's the one that um, Carlos Rodon was dealing with. But you really got to be concerned, right? Because you're talking about a guy who's a previous Tommy John guy. You're talking about a guy with a long injury history and who just signed a gigantic contract. A lot of times when it's that upper forearm area, that's your body saying, stop it. Like, well, what's going on here? <laughs> and uh, you got you to gotta be really concerned if you're the Yankees about Carlos Rodon just because two-time Tommy John guys aren't completely unheard of, especially these days. Yeah, and it's an interesting rotation sort of top to bottom because despite the time that he is going to spend on the shelf, despite the fact that the Yankees will be lucky to get really anything at all from Frankie Montas, we still have them projected as the best rotation in baseball at Fangraphs, but it doesn't take much for you to see how this could kind of go awry for them if, you know, if Nestor Cortez gets hurt again, if Luis Severino goes down, if they get underperformance from some of the other guys. So just as a unit, what are your expectations for them and then should they suffer additional injuries, who are some of the reserves who we might see in action in the Bronx if, you know, another guy goes down? Well, listen, it's hard not to expect a lot from them, right? Because Garrett Cole, I think, has somehow been underrated since he's been a Yankee. Yeah, he hasn't been necessarily $324 million guy. He hasn't been the guy that he was with the Astros, but Man, he, he's a number one. If there is a number one uh, out there, he, oh, okay, he's a, uh, a, a upper level number one, I would say. And then Luis Severino has been a number one in the past. Uh, it's about staying healthy for him. Uh, he's on a walk year, so he, this is his last chance, really, to score that gigantic contract. He's already got one of them. He's hoping to get another. It's hard not to expect big things. Clark Schmitz looked really good in spring training, of course with a new pitch, um, a cut fastball that really has looked good against left-handed hitters. But when you talk about depth, when you talk about who is next after these guys, should Luis Severino go down with a lat again, man, it's kind of sparse back there. You're looking at guys without a whole lot of major league experience, Ryan Weber. You're looking at uh, John, Johnny Brito, uh, a prospect on the back end of the 40-man roster. You're looking at Randy Vasquez, who the Athletics Keith Law puts at uh, number 12, uh, on the Yankees' top prospects list. So he's a guy who could try to step in. But the Yankees, over the last two seasons, well, we'll just look at last season. They traded seven pitchers from their mid to upper level prospect depth. And the year before that, they traded a couple um, higher level pitchers who could have filled into this back end of the rotation. So the cupboard is a little bare when it comes to double A 
AAA pitching for the Yankees, and they really need to stem these injuries because there's not a whole lot of support behind the five guys who are in the rotation right now. Yeah, speaking of another injured player, the Yankees traded for Frankie Montas. What's the outlook for him? Because you look back at the deals that were made. Now, Scott Efros was effective at first until he had Tommy John surgery and Lou Trevino was effective for a while. He's hurt now. We could do this whole segment about injured pitchers. We haven't brought up Tommy Canely yet. But what about Montas? Was there a process problem with the way he was acquired, given that there were some health concerns about him even before he became a Yankee? And is he going to be a Yankee at some point this season? Well, the uh, the, the outlook for Montas is not all that different uh, than the outlook my parents had for me at the outset of my college years. Uh, not not very good. They didn't expect a whole lot. Um, and, uh, and the Yankees really shouldn't expect a whole lot. Well, you've exceeded expectations. You're the Yankees beat writer for The Athletic. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I needed to hear that. I, I, don't, I don't hear it at home. Um, but... Uh, I, I think that you got to expect absolutely nothing from Frankie Montas because he's given you nothing so far. And when he tells you he's healthy, you doubt him. And when he comes back, you doubt him again because this is what you did last trade deadline. He took the mound, said he's perfectly fine despite the shoulder being an issue with the A's, come, comes out, gets smacked around, goes in the IL, comes back, gets smacked around again. And then this spring, or this really this offseason, says, oh man, I don't feel great. And oh yeah, by the way, Last trade deadline, I was lying. I was actually in pain. So you really can't expect anything from Frankie Montas. It's a uh, it's a August cross your fingers that he's back. But I mean, you know, you you really just shouldn't um, shouldn't think that you're actually going to get anything from him at all. I guess maybe before we move on from the rotation, I want to ask about one guy who actually has been optioned already um, and was given another option year, which might end up being pretty meaningful uh, for his career. And that's Stevie Garcia, who really struggled after having a really lovely 2020, um, but doesn't have to be rushed to be on the big league roster because of that extra option. What did you see from him in camp? And do you think he might end up playing a role for them down the road here? Well, you know, you saw an upper 90s fastball which he didn't have before. He was touching 98 earlier this spring. You see in him a lot of the, I don't know, ease, confidence when he's on the mound. Uh, I don't want to say unflappability, but just, you know, he, he looks like he, he knows what he's doing out there despite the absolutely horrible numbers he's shown since his breakout 2020. It's, it's hard to say what went wrong for Davey Garcia. You know, uh, the Yankees have had a lot of success stories when it comes to taking a talented pitcher or raw talent and amplifying that, whether it's from a velocity standpoint, adding them a slider, uh, changing mechanics here or there. But I don't know for sure who's to blame when it comes to Davey Garcia. Did he just, did his stuff just back up on him somehow? Did the Yankees in their attempts to help him with his fastball placement, help him uh, add a sweeping slider? Did they screw up his entire delivery and, and throw off his confidence and just tank what ended up, you know, what was once a prospect people compared to it as a, a young Pedro Martinez. And, you know, that sounds silly to say now, but I was drinking the Kool-Aid. I was talking to the Yankees international scouts who were saying, holy crap, watch this guy. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's hard to say what's going to come of Davey Garcia. But in some ways, he's lucky he got another option year because it gives him one more year to where he has to, he can, you know, prove himself in the minors get back to the majors and be a valuable piece as opposed to a flamed out prospect who who can't be just sent up and sent down whenever a team wants. 
Nestor Cortez made his Grapefruit League debut this past weekend. Didn't pitch particularly well, but the important thing is that he was back in action. Has enough time elapsed now? Does he have enough of a track record that even though he does things in a wonderfully unconventional way, we should accept that he is as good as he's been? Or is there always going to be some question just because he's not a super hard thrower? He relies on deception, etc. Can you count on him to keep pitching like a solid number two type? Yeah, I don't think the Yankees want to depend on him as a number two. Or even, or even as like an absolute number three. He had a great year last year, and he really—that's an extension of his 2021, where he was really strong from I believe August on in the rotation. Mm-hmm. Look, you're always going to look at Nestor Cortez with a little bit of a side eye. You know, he's he's six foot ish. We're about the same height. He doesn't have the super broad shoulders like a Rodon. He doesn't have the height of a Garrett Cole or a Clay Holmes. He doesn't look like your quarterback prototype that typically takes a mound these days and becomes an ace but he does it in some awesome ways uh and, and you know you talk about uh, pitchers these days a lot of them are just chucking up to get triple digits and adding a slider uh, nestor cortez pitches he hits spots he's up and down left and right i think that plays as long as as long as he's able to stay healthy and, and as long as his fastball continues to, to to maintain the velocity he's at pitters talk about his fastball you know, he's got a lot of good breaking stuff, right? But how his fastball kind of sneaks up on you at yeah, 94, but, but it plays at 96, 97, just from the uh, the funky delivery, uh, from some of the extension he gets, from the arm angles he uses. He'll he'll bust out a sidearm on you out of nowhere, and all of a sudden you're down a one. So I think that Nestor Cortez is legit. I do think we need to stop thinking of him as this circus act, but you really can't blame anybody who does just because when you look at him on the mound, Lefty, coming at you funky, not throwing hard, you're not thinking of what today's prototypical ace looks like. So this is the first year in a while where I can remember the Yankees' bullpen projecting as low as it does. And that isn't to say that it's bad or that it doesn't have some interesting guys. Obviously, Clay Holmes will be there and Michael King and you get Wandy Peralta back and Jonathan Loisega. Like there are, there are guys in here. Um, but we're used to seeing them at the top. We currently project them for 12th in baseball. So amongst the guys who might be floating around in the bullpen, is there anyone who you have eyes on who might surprise Yankees fans to the upside? So, I mean, uh, maybe I'm uh, around the team too much. I'm surprised. I think that 12 was a little low Uh, when it comes to this bullpen. I don't... (sighs) Clay Holmes, right? First half of last year, absolutely dirty, all-star closer. Wandy Peralta grows into his own. Mike King snaps his elbow in half when he's probably the most valuable reliever in all of baseball uh, when he went down in early July last year or mid-July last year. Listen, there's a lot of guys in there who throw hard, who get grounders. I I would think that the Yankees' bullpen has a much better chance, aside from the brand names that you're aware of with uh, Tommy Canley, Peralta, Jonathan Luizaga. I mean, you know, I, I, I have scouts from other teams who still come say to me, why is this guy not a starting pitcher? The, the stuff is that good. Granted, the injury history is scary. You know, Ron Marinaccio was really good as a rookie last year. Jimmy Cordero is a guy who I believe is out of options. He might have one option. I don't really know what his situation is there. But he has a track record of, of you know, being a, a fastball, sinker type, a lot of ground balls. Yankees have pretty good infield defense. He should play up there. Uh, Matt Crook is, is another guy who's a prospect pedigree. Never really put it together, but 
high strikeout guy. I just think the Yankees have a lot of arms with upside. Albert Abreu, you know, he, he, the Yankees have uh, DFA'd him three different times, but he ends up coming back. And somehow the Yankees get way more out of him than any other team does. So I, I just look at the Yankees bullpen and I say, there are probably 10 legitimate dudes here. And, and they're, all, they're all pretty solid. Is there a, a prime Maraldis Chapman? Is there a prime Zach Britton, Andrew Miller, Dylan Batances? No. But, you know, I, I think that you can feasibly argue that Clay Holmes has a chance to be an all-star this year. Mike King should have been an all-star last year. Tommy Canely, if he's healthy, has all-star type stuff. Jonathan Lewisica was probably the Yankees' best pitcher in the second half last year. Just really, really good you know, right, righty fastball slider. So I think that this bullpen really does have a lot of uh, a lot of standouts. Let's talk about the offense, which was the Aaron Judge show last year. And really, with a season like that, it would have been the Aaron Judge show for any team. But at times, it really was a judge or bust because no one else was hitting. And that kind of forced the Yankees' hand. They just had to bring him back. Did anything surprise you about the way the Judge sweepstakes played out this offseason? I think you had to expect that he would be back. But do you think it ever actually got close? There have been various uh, blow by blow kind of TikTok accounts. The Padres were ponying up tons of cash. So did anything surprise you about the way that went or resolved? And then what do you think Yankees fans are expecting Aaron Judge to do as a follow-up to that season? Because it would, of course, be completely unfair to expect anyone to replicate that season. And yet, having done that and then cashed in on that, I wonder whether expectations will be sky high. So... When it comes to Aaron Judge's free agency, I, I kind of thought 80% the whole time that he'd end up a Yankee. It just seemed like it made too much sense from what he spoke about in the offseason towards the end of the year, wanting to be on a winner, wanting to be at a place where he can establish a legacy, wanting to give himself a chance every year to win a World Series. He was saying things that sounded like New York Yankees, New York Yankees, New York Yankees. And, you know, I really, I don't hear a lot of stories about players leaving the Yankees and saying, man, this is so much better. A few years back, I spoke to Brett Gardner about you know, his free agency because it kind of went down to the wire. Yankees ended up bringing him back. And he told me that he hears horror stories about how, how other teams run things in comparison to the Yankees. At least they pay for the Wi-Fi, though, on the planes. Well, okay, okay. That was a great story, by the way. Well, well done. Yeah. That, that just that made me so angry because that's such a great story. Um, yeah. but, uh, but, you know, he, they just like hear like, that playing for the Yankees and the amenities they, they provide and the, the hotels and the, and the flights, like that feels like the big leagues when they get there and then they leave the Yankees and say, oh, man, I didn't realize how good I had it. So, so that was one of the things that was in the back of my mind as a reporter. Um, you know, of course, the Giants were in the picture. Of course, the last minute, the Padres were in the picture. And Judge has said it himself that, you know, the Yankees weren't close on their offer until, you know, the ninth hour or 10th hour, 11th hour. I don't know what the cliche is. Um, but, you know, when, you know, when things got down to it, Hal ponied up the bucks and he could have, listen, Aaron could have uh, wrestled another 20 million, 40 million out of the Giants. He could have taken the the 400 plus million from the Padres, but when it got to a point where he was happy with the money and Hal said he'd give him that money, 
you know, that's when Aaron said, okay, I'm in. But, but if we're being honest, the Yankees were, were third in the sweepstakes for him, right? Because until the last second, it was the Giants at 360 and the uh, uh, Padres at four plus and the Yankees at 320. So, man, talk about skinny your teeth. And when it, when it comes to the, his season, though, what the Yankee, what Yankees fans expect from him this season, I don't know. They booed him when he was in the playoffs after hitting 62. <laughs> right. I mean, Jesus, uh, I, it's 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 wild. Now I know that that's a subset of idiot fans who do not represent Yankees fans in total. So relax, guys. But uh, yeah, it's it's tough to wonder what he can do again. But it's also tough to say that he can't do that again, right? Because he's so good. He's figured out a way to stay healthy. He's been working on load management. His pregame work, he's really lessened that. So, you know, his body doesn't get beaten up. But here the Yankees are probably about to throw him into the fire in center field again because Harrison Bader's out with an oblique. So, you know, you go get this center fielder, all-star type, take some work off the legs of your six foot eight, 280-pound thoroughbred, and now you got to, you know, throw him right back into the Kentucky Derby in center field because uh, Harrison Bader's hurt. So... You know, best laid plans, uh, none of them are going particularly the Yankees' way uh, this spring outside of a, a couple of the prospects who have looked really good. Yeah, I guess that's as good an opportunity as any to to ask about Bader and what his current prognosis is and then, like, what is the ideal outfield configuration for them? I mean, ideally, it's Judge and Wright, Harris and Bader in center, and then someone who's not in the te- on the team in left field. <laughs> someone new, someone better. Um, I don't think the Yankees are sold on Aaron Hicks. I don't think his spring training has them screaming, we've got our guy. They haven't given Oswaldo Cabrera that many opportunities out there this spring to say that this has been a true competition for the spot. I, you know, I know that they really like Willie Calhoun's bat, but nobody really likes Willie Calhoun's defense. Yeah, There's, there's, Rafael, there's Rafael Ortega who... Is kind of just solid all around, but unspectacular. Esteban Florial can't hit. Good, good outfielder hasn't hit. It just—it's hard to say who's in left field now. If you're talking to me in October, and they haven't found a Brian Reynolds type in left field, they haven't found you know uh, an all-star or really good left field option. Then I think you're seeing Aaron Judge in left field, Harrison Bader in center field, and either Oswaldo Cabrera or. John Carlos Stanton out in right field. Uh, I think that's I think that's the way the Yankees go. So that's been one big positional question. The other one, of course, that has dominated the conversation around this team this spring is shortstop, where you have Oswald Peraza, you have Anthony Volpe, you have Isaiah Kiner Falefa. Can you handicap the current state of that race, which uh, even as we are nearing opening day here, still seems unsettled? Yeah, I mean it's unsettled, but it's not. Uh, it's it's almost definitely going to be. Oswald Peraza, as it should, right? Probably brings higher upside, both offensively and defensively, than um, I, uh, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. He, he looked good at, uh, at his brief debut last year. We're talking about Peraza. Uh, has had a tough spring at the plate, but the Yankees don't go into spring training and say, okay, guys, competition, whoever plays the best is going to win. Like, no, that's not how it works. Peraza's been on top of the board the whole time. And I don't see any reason why that's going to change now. Now, can Volby make the opening date roster? I don't think so. It's just not how the Yankees operate. I believe 
and you guys would know this better than I would, what is it like? Keep a guy down in the minors 15 days, 16 days, and that will reset or will stunt his service clock long enough so you get an extra year out of him on the back end. I think there's no chance that the Yankees don't take the opportunity to do that, considering uh, Volpe's age. And that is essentially what the Yankees did with Glaber Torres in 2018. They, you know, it was very clear, like, he should be the starting second baseman, yet it was Neil Walker for the majority of the beginning of the season until, I think, April 22nd. And then they promoted Glaber from AAA. And also, it's very stunningly similar uh, in the amount of uh, development, too. Glaber had 20-something games at AAA when it was pretty clear that he's the option. Then he ended up needing Tommy John surgery on his right elbow before he can get called up. Played another 20 games in 2018 at AAA and then got promoted. Say Volpe plays another 15, 16, 20 games at AAA, promote him, and now we're looking at the Volpe era uh, with the Yankees. I think that's entirely possible, but then you kind of wonder what happens with Isaiah Kiner-Faleva, what happens with uh, Glaber Torres. Uh, the, the infield logjam really hasn't been settled yet. So I don't know how they're, they're going to make that happen. Yeah, of course, when those guys were coming up, they didn't have the same incentives to have him on the opening day roster that they do now. Because if they don't and he wins rookie of the year or plays a second, he'll get service time and they'll get nothing. So I wonder how that is factoring into their calculus with these sorts of things. Do you have a sense of that? No, I, I really think that you can't. I don't know. This is just me. That seems like such a crazy thing to bank on. Right? Like, yeah, you think your guy is good, but could you promote a guy and get an extra two weeks and say, we're so confident that he's going to be rookie of the year that we're going to go for it now and not just hope to, to fend, fend things off for two weeks before he shows up? I think that's such a tough, tough, tough thing to try to bank on. Well, one guy who they don't need to worry about from a service time perspective, because he's an established veteran, is Anthony Rizzo, who returned on a two-year deal. And I'm curious what your sense of his year is going to be. He was quite good for New York last year. He had his best season since 2019, and he was the first Yankee, I think, since first lefty Yankee uh, since 2012 to hit as many home runs as he did. Uh, He also had terrible luck against the shift. So what are your expectations for what his offensive performance might look like this year? I think that he's going to be really good, provided that he can stand upright. His back sounds worse than my dad's and he's 66. <laughs> uh, just the, 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 the lower back issues that uh, Rizzo has been dealing with haven't been all that uh, inspiring for the Yankees. That said, they did just hand them a two-year $40 million contract. So they're making a $40 million bet that his back doesn't suck as much as we think it does. So, okay, sucky back aside, there's no reason why Anthony Rizzo can't see his batting average skyrocket with the, the shift restrictions. Maybe teams will, will take a left fielder and put him into, into shallow right the way that teams would with the second baseman last season. We don't know exactly how prevalent that's going to be, but Rizzo's hot spots, you look at how he hits, he often will lift balls to left field. So, you know, if you, if you tempt fate by putting the left fielder over there in right field, you're looking at giving uh, Rizzo basically an automatic double, even though he's slow as hell. I think that the batting average could tick up. I think that the home runs should be there. I think that the teams are not going to be pitching him like they were when they were trying to uh, pitch him into the shift. So he might get more pitches out over the plate. Already got a good eye. I just think that you know, uh, late in his career, Anthony Rizzo has a chance to, to really – 
to step up uh, beyond what he's been since, say, 2020, where it's still a really good hitter, but just not the peaks that he was at in 2016, 2017, 2018. And while we're talking about veteran infielders, maybe we can also cover LeMahieu and Donaldson. What are the expectations for them in terms of probability of a bounce back? And if Donaldson doesn't bounce back, then could he lose playing time and to whom? So we talk about how spring training numbers don't count, right? And we talk about how they especially don't count for veterans. Well, they count if your job's on the line. You know, they start to count if you're out. Just stub my toe. You start to, they, they really, my, my spring training is really not going great, guys. Um, you know, they, they really start to count if you have something to prove. You know, uh, I, I laughed the other day. I, I get along with Josh well, but uh, when he said this to the New York Post a, uh, a week or so ago, you know, it just came off comical. He said that, you know, if he didn't have any more to offer the game, you know, he would just retire. You know, it, it's not about finances for him anymore says the guy who's about to make $26 million this year, please, like you just had a kid. Like you're not going to not give up. You're not going to give up $26 million. You're, 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 you're doing this for the money a little bit. So w- whether he actually believes he can bounce back from last year, who knows? Whether the Yankees actually believe it, who knows? They have to keep saying that they think he can bounce back. But, I mean, the lack of uh, general interest in him in, on the trade front this season, uh, sorry, this offseason, uh, combined with just how things never really got better for him last year, it's hard to think that he's going to really bounce back. Now, when it comes to DJ LeMahieu, I don't know that this really should be considered a bounce back season for him. He was so good before the All-Star break last year, and then the toe started giving him trouble. This is where the silver lining of the Yankees' infield glut comes into play because they got a lot of infielders. But they got DJ LeMahieu, who, you know, you don't know if that toe, which never had surgery this offseason, will hold up through a full year. So maybe you need those extra guys. Maybe you need to watch DJ LeMahieu's workload and play him only five games a week, and you need those extra bodies. I don't know. You know, it, you're talking about how athleticism is going to be more important than ever for middle infielders, particularly second basemen, with the shift restrictions. Well, if he's out there running on a bum toe, you're going to drive him into the ground earlier than than you did last year. So, you know, I, I think that the skills are there for DJ. It's just about whether his toe is going to hold up and whether the Yankees can keep him upright. So, man, it, it's tough to say on both Donaldson and DJ, but I would think the outlook is better for DJ. And at catcher, Trevino really seized that job, became an all-star, a gold glover. He led the league in framing, according to fan graphs. There is still a lot of hope out there for Kyle Higashioka's bat, and he did seem to underperform some of his peripherals last year. He's got good strike zone judgment. So do you expect that Trevino will still get the bulk of the playing time there? Absolutely. You know, the the Yankees love him behind the plate. They love him from a strike-stealing standpoint. They're really going to even more appreciate his throws over to first base, the the snap throws, uh, because he'll give either, you know, more opportunities to pick off runners at first base, but also low key, he'll throw over to first base just to give the pitcher maybe a breath or two between pitches, uh, knowing that the pitch clock is, is putting him up against it and, and, you know, kind of have him against the ropes. So I think it'll be Trevino. I think that Kyle Higashioka, I know, that Kyle believes that he figured something out in his swing late last season in August, um, kind of made himself a little bit more contact-oriented. 
And if you go back and look at his numbers, like I think he hit 280 the rest of the last 30 games that he played in. So that's that's an improvement. And, and Kyle is such a smart guy. He, he, he really will figure it out, you think? Uh, but I think that Trevino is the kind of unquestioned starter with with Kyle there as a as a really high quality backup, you know, on the cusp of 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 challenging him for playing time. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the back picks. Uh, Noah Woodward in his Substack, the Advanced Scout, wrote the other day about how sometimes there's a trade-off if you're a catcher. Lots of catchers have gone to the one-knee setup now, in part because it does help you frame low pitches, and so Trevino does that too. And often it can be kind of an either-or that can make it tough to get up and throw and do a back pick quickly. But if you don't do that, you're surrendering. Sometimes you have to make a, a kind of calculation because on a pitch when you try a back pick you don't get the chance to frame right and also if you're down on one knee it might be tough to do the back pick you end up potentially losing strikes on those pitches even if they're fairly close so there's a kind of an interesting cat and mouse uh, calculus that catchers have to make yeah there is there is i mean but but rizzo and and trevino last year are, are super on the same page with that they coordinate themselves and i'm sure that a lot of catchers do this but they coordinate mm-hmm. themselves on, on when that snap throw is going to come pre-pitch. Uh, and, and I'm sure the pitcher is in on that to an extent too. Uh, so, yeah. so I think that there is some coordination there. And when you are giving a bit of that strike zone control, uh, a bit of that pitch framing um, superiority, you, when you're giving it away, you know it's with the possibility uh, of grabbing somebody at, at first base. I think Trevino far and away had the most back picks last year. I think it was something silly. Like I think he I think he outpaced the field almost by double. So I don't know whether Yankees Twitter is representative of Yankees fandom in real life, but it certainly seemed that Yankees Twitter was uh, not thrilled about both Aaron Boone and Brian Cashman being back, although given their longevity and given how Hal operates, it was not a huge surprise given that the Yankees all told had a fairly successful season despite the strange trajectory of it. So do those guys just kind of have unlimited leashes? Like, is there anything that could jeopardize them? Obviously, Brian Cashman came back after his contract ran out. So is there anything they actually could do to jeopardize their jobs? And should Yankees fans be happier to have them than they are? I mean, I think that Brian Cashman is by far more safe than Aaron Boone is. And I think that goes without saying. Now, mm-hmm. just, just one from you see how long he's been uh, in the job. But and how long he's been in the Yankees organization? Really, he goes back to, I think, I think a year before I was born in in eighty six. Like I think he's been in the organization for that long. Uh, he, yeah. He's he's a Steinbrenner. Like he's essentially a Steinbrenner, Brian Cashman. At this point, <laughs> you know his his dad was real tight with with George. You know the family goes back. Uh, he's he's grown up kind of uh, at the same time alongside Hal. I don't see there really being any way that that cash gets dumped. Like outright dumped unless something crazy happens, but but also his teams win by the way, right? Ninety nine wins last year, lots of division titles, no World Series since '09. But you know you, you look at it, you know uh, on the aggregate, really successful general manager, well respected too. Uh, Brian uh, Aaron Boone, however, yeah, I mean you could see a, a situation where if this team's a dumpster fire in early June and things are looking really bad. You know, it's not like the Yankees to dump a, a manager midseason. And I don't think they would do that to Aaron Boone for how liked he is throughout the organization. But yeah, I mean, if this were to go completely in the tank this season, I mean, next year 
he, he's going into his lame duck year. This is his year two of that three-year deal. So, you know, I think that, you know, Aaron Boone certainly wouldn't be safe to, to stick around if, if uh, someone were to Molotov cocktail this season. So we always end these segments by asking how to gauge whether this is a successful season, what the goals should be. The Yankees are, of course, the ultimate World Series or bust team. So that's kind of always the answer that they'll give you if you ask. And I guess that sort of is the genuine answer. But of course, only one team of the 30 can win the World Series. So other than that, is there anything that we should judge this Yankees team by? What do they have to do or what would be the best signs of progress that they could hope for? Get to the World Series? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, Or how about this? No. How about this? How about this? Get Finish finish further than the Astros do. <laughs> you know? That, 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 that seems like the storyline every offseason. Coming into the year, have the Yankees finally outpaced the Houston Astros? Have they slayed their dragon, as Ash Cashman would say? Uh, because just the Astros seem to be at the front of player development innovation, at you know keeping guys uh, performing at a high level in the major leagues, um, cheating, kidding, kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, just, just you know, they're, they're a, a stout franchise up and down, and they bulldozed the Yankees last playoffs. You know, there's no two ways about it. So, you know, it, the Yankees haven't been to a World Series since 09. They were a game away in 2017. They made the ALCS last year, but no one seems to be happy about that. So in 199 games, but no one seems to be happy about that. So I, I don't know really the measurement you use to say it's absolutely a successful season unless it's a World Series for the Yankees who really doomed themselves with that kind of talk, right? Because mm-hmm. no one in the Yankees fan base uh, actually holds themselves to the idea of, you know, uh, championship or bust. Like, uh, h- how often do you hit the snooze before you get out of bed? Like, I do it every day. So I can't, <laughs> I can't think of uh, a, a single Yankees fan who really holds themselves to championship or bust in their personal lives. But if you're the Yankees and you say that that's our motto, that that's that's what you got to go with, and it, it's got to be. You got to look at it as as uh, the real measurement of success is a championship, and if not, what went wrong. All right. You can read Brendan's coverage of the Yankees at The Athletic along with his co-beat writer, Chris Kirshner. You can also find Brendan on Twitter at Brendan Cuddy NJ. The NJ, of course, in honor of being named the 2022 New Jersey Sports Writer of the Year. Belated congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much, Brendan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. King of New Jersey. It's, that's what I am. With the <laughs> uh, I'm, basi- I'm basically Tony, Sop- Tony Soprano of the Yankees beat. Um, but no, really, guys, uh, thank you so much for, for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. And, and I'm hoping I, I can catch up with you guys again soon. All right. We'll take one more quick break now. And we'll be back with Jesse Darty of The Washington Post to talk about the Washington Nationals, followed by the Pass Blast and today's trivia answers. Winter bodies breaking down. Tomorrow taking shape. Found the truth to take apart Built a new national spark Dumb thunder mumbling under Fleet beating heart All right, it is time to talk about the Washington Nationals. And to do that, we are joined by Jesse Darty, the Nationals beat writer for the Washington Post. Welcome back, Jesse. Thanks so much for having me, guys. 
Well, I don't know how much short-term good news there's going to be in this Washington Nationals preview segment, but let's start with the worst news. People know the drill, I guess, when it comes to Tommy John surgery, but Cade Cavalli is having it. Not great news. Tell us how big a blow this is to him personally, his long-term prospects, and the Nationals' rotation prospects for 2023. Yeah, it's a multi-pronged bad for sure, I think. First off, for Cade, not good. Uh, just in the sense that, you know, he was he was pitching pretty well in spring training. Uh, he was looking forward to this first full season, and it's a major blow, probably much more, you know, psychologically than physically, uh, given that, you know, the surgery has evolved a lot over the years. For the Nationals, the most cynical read is that they don't need to win this year, that if your player's going to get hurt, and this is, you know, I, I hold my nose even while saying this, but if a player's going to get hurt, it's probably not the worst time. But I think from a fan engagement perspective – from being able to sell this rebuild, you're now entering the second full season of a major part of that was three out of every five nights you come to the ballpark and you can see Mackenzie Gore or Josiah Gray or Kate Cavalli. And that going down to two out of five is, is tough and it makes them you know much less marketable in the short term. It, it definitely lessens excitement about this young core that they're trying to sell and that they're trying to build around. Uh, and then also if you want to sort of go Beyond that, from a team building perspective, it delays you knowing what you have in a recent first round pick, in a top prospect, in a guy you've you've sort of penciled in as part of this rebuild. Whether or not he's your future ace, you you're, you were hoping he was a part of a, a rotation for years to come. So, if you think about the recovery, it's you know a year at least, and then you're looking at an innings limit uh, and probably for the next couple seasons after that. And so we, I don't know if we'll fully know what Cade Cavalli is um, for a good while now, beyond just the typical recovery from Tommy John. So while we're talking about the Nationals' top pitching prospect, or at least he was before this injury, let me pivot from a young guy to a veteran and ask about a former Nationals' top pitching prospect and a guy who had an innings limit himself, as I recall. Steven Strasburg, is there any chance that we see him this season? Is there any chance at this point that he pitches again? This is a fun start. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty uh, pretty dire on the Strasburg front. I think that continued complications from thoracic outlet syndrome surgery, um, coupled with sort of the wear and tear of his whole career, is what we're dealing with. I think that a lot of people might say, "Well, uh, you know, Chris Archer came back, or Merrill Kelly recovered from this surgery and had a sort of second life on his on their careers." Um, it, 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 to the point where the, maybe those guys aren't you know what they once were supposed to be, but they're serviceable pitchers in a rotation, which at this point for Strasburg would be a major win for the Nationals. Uh, the difference there is that is that Strasburg comes at it from having Tommy John surgery, um, having repeated you know problems with his neck and shoulder. Uh, there's you know the, the right side of his body, um, you know from from hip on up, is um, you know has has experienced a lot of physical trauma as, as far as like baseball players go. I mean, it's, um, you know, throwing a baseball over and over as hard as you can is not natural. We know that. So the challenge he's facing with he's facing is that he's not quite in the bucket of some of these TOS success stories. He's more in the bucket of Chris Carpenter, uh, of Kenny Rogers, of maybe some of the guys who had it, um, years ago, but, but did it as sort of a last ditch attempt that I can't quite get right. Um, there's nerve damage, you know, between my neck and shoulder or whatever it may be. And, uh, I'm going to try this surgery to extend my career, um, not necessarily be 
you know, a, a three, a third starter for the next eight years, but, but try and get a few good seasons before I go off into the sunset. We, we've seen now how difficult that's been for Strasburg. Another setback right before spring training, kept him home. He has not been in West Palm beach. He's back in DC. I'm curious to see uh, when the season starts, how much he's around day to day. I mean, it is still, you know, his job technically to rehab and, and make, you know, good faith effort to be back on the field um, for everything I've heard. He's still, wants to do that he was you know on his second bullpen session of the winter when he had his setback the latest one but there's also like long-term comfort involved here I mean there was times last season where he told me that you know if he stood up too long his arm would get so numb that he had to lay on his side to regain feeling and this is someone with young children and you know conceivably you know a whole life to live beyond baseball that uh, I think now you're you're thinking about you know what that might look like not just you know this attempt to get back on the mound well In comparison to that, I guess this is the right time to ask about Patrick Corbin, because while nothing went right for him last year, at least he's not dealing with those maladies both on and off the field, but really nothing went right for Patrick Corbin last year. You know, things are bad when you're saying like, well, you know, like he, he only had a four, eight, four FIP, right? That that's generally an indication that a campaign has gone wrong. So is there a way for Corbin to write the ship? Is there anything that you have seen from him in spring that suggests to you that apart from offering them innings that he might be able to give more to DC this year? He came out on his first start and gave up back-to-back homers to the Cardinals. And it was sort of like, well, okay, here we go again. I think he's since been better for whatever spring training results are worth. And, and frankly, they're probably worth more for him than most players at this point, because he's been knocked around so much for the past few years that Start by start, it's it's hard to find positives. So if you see a good start in spring for most guys, you say, well, it's just spring training. But if you see a good start for him in spring, <laughs> I think DC now is conditioned to sort of try and grab onto it and say, maybe there's you know hope for a four ERA or whatever it may be, a four or five ERA, which again, as, as you mentioned, Meg, is not necessarily where you want to be when discussing prospects for your starting pitcher going into the season. So I guess the answer, and it's, it's sort of nihilistic, is that innings really are the best thing he can provide. And if nothing else, that's what he has done in recent years. He's obviously been statistically one of the worst pitchers in starting baseball. What this team needs more than anything is for him to not blow up in the first or second inning. Uh, you know, I, times last year, the rotation was frankly a safety hazard for the Nationals bullpen where they go back-to-back days of two, three-inning starts and and these guys at the back end, and they can't get pitchers in from Rochester fast enough to you know alleviate some of the workloads. So, I guess my answer is, again, sort of doomsday, but it's maybe like it doesn't really matter if he can improve in the short term. I mean, I think for him it does, obviously, and um, for the team morale it maybe does. But in terms of like the bigger picture, I think what he best – like five innings start, which he at times has been pretty consistent in providing, is 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 a big deal for this team, especially with how young the rotation is and how, you know, the, the prospects of potentially having some blow-up starts for some of these young guys who haven't been doing it for so long. But, you know, as far as like – what he's going to do this year. It's like, I mean, his slider has to, you know, be somewhat effective again. It's never going to be probably his 2019 slider. I think last year he was burying it to the point of it looking like a ball the whole time. And I think one thing they've been saying a lot in camp, which I think is viable is that they need, he needs to start it as a strike again and let it become a ball rather than like spiking it to the point of it never looking competitive. And I think we saw last year that he simply just stopped fooling hitters with what was once the better out pitches in baseball. And, if he can somehow tap into some former version of that slider, I think there's room for improvement for sure. And it's also, it's hard to go in the wrong direction further. So I think there's definitely room for some progression there. 
We're going to get to more encouraging questions and answers at some point in this preview, I think, I hope. (laughs) But one more, not particularly encouraging one. So the Nationals hoped that they would be able to replace Bryce Harper and Anthony Rendon, respectively, with Victor Robles and Carter Keeboom. And I guess technically they did replace them (laughs) with them, but that hasn't gone the way that they wanted it to. So since 2020, there have been 182 hitters who've made at least 900 plate appearances. Victor Robles has the fourth lowest WRC plus among them at 66. I guess the good news with him is that he does have 900 plus plate appearances, which is because his defense has been good enough to keep him in the lineup and make him a replacement level player despite the offense. Carter Keeboom has not even played nearly as much and has uh, hit on the whole in his career worse than the 66 WRC plus that Victor Robles has run over the past three seasons. So give us an update on these two. What are the expectations and the hopes if there still are some for some sort of significant improvement? Yeah, I mean, I think, as you mentioned, they were, you know, part supposed to be part of this next wave that that helped hide the departures of Bryce and, and Anthony Rendon and, and even looking beyond that, Trey Turner. Um, you know, they're not tasked with all of that, but they're supposed to be the guys that were under team control and, and, and took some of those roles. And and it's been it's been really rough so far. Carter now is dealing with injuries. He's still sort of set back from recovery from Tommy John surgery this spring, so he's not been quite full going camp. And I, and I think he'll start the year either on the injured list or in in the minors. And then and then Robles, you know, there were a lot of underlying numbers in 2019 that suggested you know, his, his power numbers, obviously the ball that year uh, contributed as well, but uh, his power numbers and even his contact numbers were going to fall off at some point and, and regress. And, and we've seen that in a major way. I don't know if the numbers quite suggested this, but I, I think both of them are caught in this cycle now, of just repeated swing changes, repeated drills, retreated, repeated programs, repeated conversations with the coaches about what's wrong. And, and having watched it up close, I'm not really sure how you bounce back from that. It's almost like, any bit of success is now so magnified and so celebrated both maybe by the staff and even by media. I'll put myself in that, that, that then you're in your head about now, what can I keep doing to keep doing this? And how can I keep going in the right direction? And, and I, I think the feedback loop and, and sort of the psychological toil of these guys last few seasons and, and, and falling so short of these huge expectations as top prospects has been real. Um, obviously there's a physical component as well, and they haven't been up to making the adjustments that major league pitchers have made to them. And, and that's, that's a major part of this as well. But I, I do think that like, it, it's almost like, I think that a change of scenery, at least in Robles's case, cause he has more numbers in the major league level. Um, Carter, I think it's, you can maybe say that, you know, he should get another chance here post Tommy John, but uh, for Robles's case, like a change of scenery would seem so prudent just because of, you know, that again, that, that loop he's stuck in. And for now, I think like on a, on a contender, um, you know, is there a place for him as a, fourth, fifth outfielder who can run and, and be a defensive replacement in a big game? Uh, Maybe, uh, but he has to hit a bit more than he is now. It can't be these numbers. You can't prop yourself up with what he's doing now. So I'm going to mention a guy who struggled at the big league level in 2022, but I, I want to offer an opportunity for optimism here because I, I don't think things are too late. So when, when CJ Abrams was, uh, was with San Diego, he made his big league debut with, I think, fewer than 80 minor league games played just by virtue of the pandemic being weird and their needs. And then he obviously came over to the Nationals. What are what are your expectations for him this year? Because, you know, on the one hand, his big league debut did not go great. 
<laughs> um, either in San Diego or in DC. But as I said, like he didn't have a lot of minor league run. He's still a very young guy. Um, what what does the forecast look like for him? And do you think that they will just give him run in the bigs this year, or is there is there a chance that he might end up back down in Triple A to kind of cook a little more? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think that to piggyback on the experience point, it's also above high school because he's not a college guy. So those 80 games or, or whatever it may be. And then plus the ones he played in DC or the amount of games he's played above high school. So still just extremely inexperienced. Um, the pandemic has a role in that as well. And I, he'll get, he'll get run to answer your question. Um, he'll, he'll get the run in the majors. He won't go back down to the minors as far as I can see right now or have heard. I, I do think that maybe last year, was a missed opportunity to let him get comfortable in AAA at the end of the season instead of bringing him up in mid-August as they did. There was an injury to Luis Garcia. Of course, you can always figure it out and bring somebody else up. I do think we saw with both Kbert Ruiz and then with C.J. Abrams a year later this sort of idea that you had to show um, fans and maybe even ownership um, some fruits of these big trades they made that they had to bring guys up at the end of the season sort of make a big show of it, um, maybe even sell some tickets, you know, and – and uh, he, I think he was kind of caught up in that last year. Not saying that was the only reason, but I do think that had he been like a Nationals prospect, right, and not someone who arrived in the Juan Soto trade, I'm not sure he comes up in late August. I don't think he would have shown at the minor league level what they would have wanted from a normal prospect, not someone who was sort of part of this blockbuster deal. So that's sort of the download on, I think, like maybe some stunted growth last year, but I don't think all is lost, as, as you mentioned. I think that uh, he is elevating the ball a lot more in spring this year. I've noticed that. We saw so many rollovers last year, so many grounders. He's not supposed to be like a slap and run kind of guy. I think that would be a major disappointment given um, his potential and maybe what he was originally. Uh, at shortstop, he's I think there's he's made some really eye popping plays. Um, he's sort of a high re- highlight real guy. I, the the pitch by pitch defense and making more routine plays is more in question. He reminds me a bit of Trey Turner in that way, where I think that. You see sort of like him track down a ball in shallow left or you see him make a play in the hole or a jumping throw and you think, well, he has to be a great defender. But then over the course of a season, you know, it's these guys get to everything, which maybe does, you know, hurt them to some degree just in, just anecdotally. But his arm can get a bit errant. I think he's uh, has to get a bit more locked in sort of at bat to at bat um, beyond sort of the, these great plays he makes. So, yeah, I think he could be solid and they have high expectations. But also, like, again, sort of similar to the Corbin question or. Uh, the Cavalli question, like this season is not critical in the in the wins losses column. He does have a lot of room to grow. So in some ways that can be tough for a player, but other ways it can be really beneficial. So obviously the Nationals won the Juan Soto trade because by moving Juan Soto, they made room for Phenom Joey Manessas, who has outplayed Juan Soto since that trade. Not to mention that Luke Voigt outplayed Josh Bell after that trade. So really, anything the Nationals get out of the prospects in this deal is just gravy at this point. All right, maybe this is a skewed perspective, perhaps, on this trade. We will certainly ask about Joey Manessas, the man, the myth, the legend. But the rest of that prospect package, James Wood, the centerpiece, is consensus one of the best prospects in baseball. Both Fangraphs and Baseball Prospectus had him at number three this spring. And he's a ways away. He's only 20 and he hasn't played above a ball. Feel free to talk about him and rave about him because goodness knows there's only so many things that we can rave about in this segment. But I am curious also about Mackenzie Gore, who is another big part of that deal and just the package as a whole, at least on the prospect side. How did the Nationals make out given uh, several months of hindsight, which obviously is not nearly enough to have a final verdict? 
I was waiting to get teed up for Joey Manessis here. Yeah, we'll get there. You uh, very ceremoniously joined the Joey Manessis beat last August, which I was appreciative <laughs> of. Uh, I Yeah, so I'll start with Wood. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right in that there's not a lot of good or um, on the national side. And, and, you know, as with any prospect discussion, it's probably worth saying that, like, these aren't guarantees. But from everything I've heard about James Wood and seen, I don't consider myself a scout, but I think, you know, you, you see things, you're like, wow, that's interesting. Um He's a really, really, really intriguing prospect and deserving of, you know, top five, top three rankings in some cases based on the publication. Definitely the sort of main piece of that trade from the beginning, not just after some, you know, offseason ruminations. I think it was easy sort of to point to Robert Hassel because he had played more minor league ball or CJ Abrams because he had been at the major league level or Mackenzie Gore because of the amazing sort of um, April and May he had had last season. But from the beginning, the first thing I heard about that trade was that, you know, they were just elated to get James Wood and elated that and and the Padres on the other end were the most reticent to give him up. So he's that player in this trade. You know, he's obviously not supposed to replace Juan Soto or be Juan Soto. That's yeah, that's Joey Manessis's job. Right, exactly. And also he doesn't have to because he has Joey. Uh, But but I would say he's he's that main player and his strikes and recognition is uh, supposed to be. Really, really good, which, again, yes, we've heard about another left-handed outfielder in the national system in recent years. But also uh, the way he cut down his strikes, strikeouts from high school at IMG to his first year with the Padres was remarkable. And it, it went from you know almost cut in half from above 30% to below 20%. And he's kept that rate up, if not, you know, to a T, but he's, but he's stayed in that range. And it has not spiked again as he's, as he's gone up to high A. So... Or, or low A. So I'm, I'm interested to see where he starts. Um, it could be high A, but I think it would be a quick trip there. Uh, the double A jump is probably going to be more telling for him uh, just in terms of, you know, facing other teams, like better prospects on the pitching side. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's he's definitely probably reason number one for Nationals fans to be excited, which is hard because it's he's far away from the big league field still. And then elsewhere in the trade, Hassel's dealt with a broken handmate, uh, which a lot of guys are dealing with, it feels like, um, at the Arizona Fall League. And then now he's dealing with a wrist injury that that Mike Rizzo the other day said he feels might be a product of sort of overswinging and or, or overworking and swinging a lot in the um, in the aftermath of the handmade trade to try and catch up development wise. So they have to definitely look at that. I mean, he's he's a someone who's supposed to have you know contact gap to gap power. If he continues to have wrist problems, that could really sap you know those tools and uh, would not be good. So that's something to look out for. But he's been a bit slow down in spring training, so I haven't seen him quite as much down here. Uh, Mackenzie Gore is. Struggle with command. I, I think last year there were some habits created when he had the elbow inflammation that ultimately shut him down for that second half of the season. He also has been known in the minors to struggle uh, with his release points and consistent mechanics. And I think we're seeing that a bit down here where his fastball command's been off and then everything's kind of, you know, fluttering off of that. So, uh, you know, spring results again or spring results, but I think he has something to prove going to DC, not just because he's a young guy, but also because he's created some question marks with his ability to command the strike zone down here. Uh, and then Harleen Susana, I don't want to forget him. He's I went down to see him in Fredericksburg last year uh, in August, and I turned around and Mark Lerner was sitting a few rows behind me. And I was like, you know, it's not very often that the owner comes down to see a 19-year-old pitching prospect, but when he throws 105, which he did, he hit 104.8 that day. I guess that's when the owner makes a trip down from D.C. So, of course, he's a long way from the majors. Um, 
I'm very curious to see sort of how, where his development goes from here. They were starting him just to control his innings and the way he entered and exit games. I do imagine that he'll end up in the bullpen, especially with that fastball. But, you know, he's throwing a 95-mile-per-hour slider. Uh, he's one of these um, alien types when it comes to velocity, and it's it was cool to see it in person. Um, and, and we'll see how that goes from here. So maybe we can talk about a, a former sort of top prospect returned in a big trade in Keeper Ruiz. I'm curious how the extension that he signed this offseason came together, what the club's expectations are for him this year, but also what the duration of that extension might mean for their understanding of when they could be competitive again. Yeah, so it, it came together fairly quickly. I think from the outside a lot of people will point to the fact that Ruiz left Scott Boris, who is generally averse to you know pre-free agency or even pre-arbitration extensions, and went to Octagon, a different agency, and then the extension came together quickly. Um, I can't quite speak to you know the validity of that. I'm still trying to report it out myself, but whether that you know that those conversations only began post-agency switch, but. That's sort of some of the subtext that's that's at least out there and not and it's worth mentioning at the very least. As far as how it came together, it came together quickly. The Nationals approached him with around the numbers that he ultimately signed for, which is eight years, 50 million front loaded with a signing bonus this season. And then it it basically buys out his all of his team control years and adds on three years of free agency and then two club options on the back end. So it could be a 10-year deal. Club options are a jump in salary as they typically are. And but it does sort of extend him three seasons beyond what they would have had. So I think in terms of clarity on when the timeline is, it doesn't necessarily give us a great indication. I think it would have been easier to decipher something on the timeline if he was like at the end of his team control years and they extended him for four more years beyond it. And then we'd say, okay, now they want to lock in this catcher for this stretch. And they're thinking about spending more, but because it's so such a wide net here, it's an eight year deal. I mean, they could really start, you know, adding to payroll at any point of that. What I will say is that they were intent on front loading some of it, in his arb years and in his pre-arb years because they are okay with, you know, spending money now because they're so far from any sort of luxury tax and, and they're, um, and they're, the payroll's really low, frankly, aside from Steven Strasburg and Patrick Corbin. So front-loading it with a signing bonus and, and, you know, giving him 5 million in some years where he maybe made, would have made the league minimum was strategic on the nationals part because it maybe frees up some room on the back end when, if they are going to run a, a higher payroll in the, at the end of his deal, then they'll be able to do so uh, more comfortably, I guess. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily love talking about millionaires and billionaires being more comfortable in this sense, but I guess it would be more comfortable for them because of the way the, stru- the contract is structured. So at the very least, what we can decipher is that the, toward the back end, they would hope to be running a higher payroll than they are now, which I think we maybe knew otherwise, but it's more clear with the way in which they, they got this deal done. Yeah, he definitely underperformed some of his peripherals last year in terms of his quality of contact, and he makes a lot of contact. So if he could hit for a little more power, that would make him quite valuable. Not that he's been bad thus far, but it seems like there's further room for growth there. And that leads me to the other big return in the trade that brought back Cabert Ruiz, the Scherzer-Turner deal that also brought back Josiah Gray who has not performed up to expectations thus far, seems to have quite a hittable fastball. So what, if anything, are they trying to do differently with Gray? We've talked about Gore. We've talked about Cavalli. Gray is sort of the other youngish standard bearer in that rotation who has a lot of high hopes resting on his shoulders. Yeah, so we we saw last year that his breaking stuff played pretty well. I mean, his slider was a really good pitch, and his fastball was one of the worst pitches in baseball. And that led to him 
having numbers that are commensurate with being one of the least effective starters in the league. So toward the end of last season, he tinkered with a sinker, just trying to get batters off a straight fastball, which makes sense. He needs something that moves a bit more. His fastball, his forcing fastball does not have a ton of movement. So, you know, adding something that moved made a lot of sense. But I think this spring and the offseason, he realized that a cutter might be a better option for him because, you know, this is very, very surface level. But my understanding is at least that, you know, throwing something that moves the same way as his slider and his curveball, you know, it, it's that's going right to left generally. And he's proven an ability to move the baseball that way really well. So the cutter is maybe a bit more natural for him than trying to find out how to get sort of left to right run, sorry, with a sinker. So um, I think the cutter would be a good pitch for him just because it would maybe get hitters off his straight fastball a bit more. If he could throw another hard pitch at a higher rate than he was his sinker last season, which I think is the plan with the cutter, then there is some hope yet for his four seam to not be hit around so much. And also you add that another pitch, I mean, to go in against lefties, um, go away from righties. So the cutter is sort of the the main thing here that is the, is the next step for him or the next, they hope is the next step for him to hopefully improve on his 2022 because it wasn't great. I mean, and, and he took a lot of lumps and I think that, you know, beyond, you know, that just being a little bit, a little bit discouraging following that trade, it's also not great for him to be in a situation where he's just getting hit over and over and over. And it might make you question some things that are working. It might make you start, you know, doing result over process arguments in your own head. And I know he's um, a super smart pitcher who, you know, really looks at a lot of data and a lot of, um, in a lot of film and the Edutronic camera is behind him all the time in his bullpen sessions down here. And he's frequently going back to the iPad to see his grips. And I, I would think that seeing some results and, and seeing some, you know, more consistent results because there were games last year where he clicked, um, would go a long way to helping him find sort of his base, whether it's you know his base repertoire, his base, you know, pitch usage, and and he'll he'll be tinkering his whole career as he should be. But I think right now I can tell there's a lot of tinkering going on, and, and eventually he's going to have to put together you know a handful of good starts where he can say, okay, that's who I am, and that's that's how I pitch, and that's how I want to get hitters out. And, and then go from there and then use his analytical brain to, to branch off and, and game plan instead of always using it to reinvent himself, you know, between starts and whatever it may be. That, that, can, that can be taxing, I think, um, especially for a young pitcher. Well, we waited long enough for the Joey Manessis question, so <laughs> let's just do it. I think he was one of the best stories of the 2022 season, not just for the Nationals, but just MLB-wide. I certainly caught Manessis' fever, and it seemed like he just came around at the perfect time. Just Nationals fans were low, obviously, having lost Juan Soto. I don't know that anything makes up for the departure of Juan Soto, but Joey Manessis did his best, and as I said, actually did outplay Juan Soto down the stretch. So... The question is always going to be, how hard will regression bite him this year? It does seem like he hits the ball hard, right? But with a guy who's about to turn 31 and just made the majors last year, you would expect that he could not duplicate what he did last year. So what is he capable of realistically this season? Yeah, (laughs) it's a good question. I've thought about this a lot, probably too much. Uh, But I will say first, and it's something you got at, been in your ringer story about him last year. And it's something I tried to get at too, is that like, aside from what he could be, I do think it's fun and refreshing, frankly, to have a guy who comes around who like maybe wasn't so predictable and maybe his success isn't predictive, but it's okay. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it it could kind of just be fun. And I understand from like a, from a team building perspective and an acquisition perspective and a scouting perspective, why like, yes, of course you look at the, you know, the things that may be exploitable, but like it felt kind of like last year that like where the nationals were in the standings, it wasn't like 
it was just kind of nice to have a guy who was just defying expectations and maybe not have had the most like predictive peripherals, but could just be good. Um, so that's my, it's my Joey Manessis soapbox screed, I guess. But on top of that, I mean, the sample sizes are so small because the overall sample size is small. And then the, and then you cut that into like how he did against certain pitches and breaking balls and changeups and fastballs. And those sample sizes are small. But if you look at those, like he actually was pretty good. Like they started to attack him up and in and he started turning on the ball and driving with power, you know, to the pull side. And they started to attack him low and away and he started driving the ball in the right center gap. And, and he hits curveballs really well. And he, and he attributes that to his, the so many years he played in the Mexican winter league where he's like, guys don't throw fastballs. They only throw 88. So they, I just saw so many curveballs over and over and over. So, I do think, you know, overall, like, we don't quite know yet because, like, the micro samples within his season last year suggest that he could hit anything and hit any pitch in any part of the zone, which, of course, is not true. So I am interested to see where pitchers go first, um, which would likely be a product of, like, video study because I think stats don't quite bear out um, yet, like, what would where he'd be exploitable, and then how that looks and if he can keep counter-adjusting and, uh, and can keep hitting, you know, whatever adjustment they – they throw at him, then yeah, he obviously is the next Juan Soto at 31 years old. But um, <laughs> I don't know if that's quite going to happen. So we'll see. Well, my answer is we'll see. So we could probably devote an entire podcast to the fact that the Nationals are for sale and the state of their sale. That is uh, a potential sale that has become more complicated in recent months with the passing of Ted Lerner. So we don't have to go through all the ins and outs here, but I want to ask first, sort of what impact learners passing is having on the org now and what the current state of a potential sale of the nationals is going forward. Yeah, I think Ted's death adds another uncertainty to the process. It hasn't changed it, at least from my understanding in a material way, but it does add, you know, just more questions. Um, The question being, obviously what were his wishes um, what kind of wishes did he leave behind and and how how will those be carried out um, would be sort of the top of mind ones. And if I had the answer to that, that would be awesome. We could break some news on this podcast. Uh, but I, and then I think the big thing in the four most hated letters on the Nationals world is MASN, Masson, which are bigger complication probably than what's happening with the family at the moment. And But I would say it just kind of heaps on top of that complication. So... We can go into Maxson if you want, uh, or we could not. But yeah, I'd say like it hasn't had like any serious change on the front end, at least, or on the sort of forward facing side. But um, obviously, we're a year into this for a reason, and that's because there's been many complications and 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 many reasons why the Nationals have not sold yet. Maybe give the the Reader's Digest version of the Masson mess if if one exists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a. I feel I feel very tested now. Uh, yeah, basically, I guess the the best way to explain it from a sale perspective is this really complicated situation for the Nationals' TV rights and and then the money in which they receive from their TV and and there's a whole lot of litigation going on most recently in Albany and New York's you know highest courts to decide what the Nationals are owed by the Orioles. Um, this all stems from when the Nationals moved from Montreal to D.C., Major League Baseball essentially giving Baltimore control of Masson and the Nationals TV situation in perpetuity, which are sort of the famous two words or infamous two words, um, as a sort of a carrot for infringing upon their market and their fan base in the in the D.C. Baltimore corridor. And what's happening now is that I think most people who buy it obviously see Masson or, or local TV streaming, et cetera, as a 
serious revenue stream, a, a reason to buy a baseball team in 2023, but without any clarity about what that looks like. And while seeing the the ongoing legal processes that the Nationals have gone through with the Orioles year after year after year, I think there's two things that are happening. One is people are either saying, I'd like to buy that team when the situation is resolved, or they're saying, I would like to buy that team at a discounted price because the situation is unresolved. So one, it's limiting the market of people who are bidding on this franchise or who are even showing cursory interest. And two, it's it's contributing to the fact that the learners have not received the price that they want. Because if they had, <laughs> we probably, we might see the fact that the team might change hands. So um, that's, that's sort of the bird's eye view. Um, the other thing I would say, just related to that real quick, this is verging on not being the Reader's Digest version anymore, but uh, the the other facet and a telling measure for me is the Nationals Park is still called Nationals Park. There aren't many teams left in Major League Baseball who have maintained a non-corporate name on their stadium for obvious financial reasons. And I think it's telling for us that um, the learners are many, many years into their ownership of Nationals Park and have made zero dollars on the naming rights because they have never found their price. So if that's an indication of their negotiating style when it comes to corporate sponsors, um, it can be very instructive for us to understand how they're also approaching the sale of the team. So whoever owns the franchise, the success of it is kind of contingent on the Nationals drafting and developing good players, and that has been a problem for them of late. I'm quoting here from Jarrett Seidler's Baseball Prospectus annual essay. In recent times, the Nationals have systematically overvalued hitters who look good by traditional scouting methods, sweet-looking swings, nice shows of power and batting practice, old-school notions of physical projectability, while ignoring glaring flaws exposed by analytics, poor in-zone contact rates, low exit velocities, high chase rates. He goes on to say that they've been similarly myopic on the pitching side, consistently acquiring pitchers who throw hard but don't get whiffs on their fastballs and have major durability question marks. They have paired poor drafting with poor player development. There just haven't been success stories of hitters unlocking power from new swing path or pitchers learning great sweepers to pile up more whiffs. So where do the Nationals stand from a player development, scouting, R&D perspective? I know that you've reported that they've made some additions in analytics and player development and sports science. So how do they compare to the rest of the league and have they caught up or at least uh, lowered, narrowed the gap? Yeah. Two things there is one, I've often wondered as the Nationals continue to play catch up in these areas, what they're missing, which I think is a major thing because closing the gap is tough in terms of, you know, getting to where some of some of these more progressive franchises have gotten because you're constantly doing what they were doing three to five years ago, if not longer. So that's, that's hard. That's a hard space to live in. And I'm not quite sure how you get there. I, I do think in the last two off seasons, they've made some material changes in terms of staff and pure um, gear for technology I, what, what comes next to me is more of a culture change around it. Uh, how do we actually translate it to players? How do we get our coaches on board to work with our performance analysts we've hired, to work with our biomechanists that we've hired, to work with our R&D staff that we've, that we've expanded to include more hands in player development specifically? Now, I do think that with financial investment will come culture investment because it's to some level, like you don't want to pay for these things and not use them. And whether they'll use them effectively or whether they'll use them to the extent they should um, is a much bigger question that I think we won't know the answer to for a few years now when this current class of prospects cycles out and we understand their development a bit better. But there seems to be a commitment to actually adding and not and not just being a cosmetic 
ads, actually trying to add it to the process. Um, they've gotten much more deliberate in their you know specific player plans. They've they've added Hawkeye at, at six stadiums, um, Nationals Park on down to their affiliate in, in West Palm Beach. So there are some changes happening, but I, I want to be really clear in my own writing and when I talk about it on, on podcasts like this, that it's not all that's needed, that there needs to be a push from the top down to actually make this a part of the organization's uh, identity and culture and and get away from a lot of those maybe scouting habits or player development habits that, that Jarrett mentions in that essay, which I thought was really illuminative of a lot of the problems nationals have had in, in, in growing talent um, in the system and, and translating it to the major leagues. So your colleague, Barry Sverluga, recently ranked all 19 Washington Nationals spring training just in terms of the excitement or buzz or hope associated with the team. And 2023 came in dead last. Is there anything that should offer some excitement for this season? Anyone on the roster who has some sort of breakout potential or someone you think is unsung, underappreciated, just anyone who could come up during the year just uh, other than Joey Manessis and perhaps progress from some of the post-type prospects that we've discussed? Is there anyone here who fans should be excited to see? I think the biggest draws are the players we've talked about. Um both mm-hmm. for their flaws and for their potential, um, just seeing if those can get ironed out. You know, I mean, Hunter Harvey is a re- one-inning reliever, so it's not necessarily like a reason to come to the ballpark every night, but I think he was a really interesting waiver claim, and they've seemed to work on his mechanics to the point where he's able to stay healthier than he did with the Orioles. Obviously, he was a very highly touted prospect, a hard thrower, first-round pick, all those things that um, didn't pan out in Baltimore because of his inability to stay on the mound. So, but with the Nationals, he has, and, and that's been encouraging, and he's pitched really well. Um, so that's that's one player. I, I do think that there are some young prospects, um, some of the guys we mentioned, maybe if Hassel, Wood, who could move quickly through the system if they play well. I think Mike Rizzo, one thing we really do know about him is that he likes to fast-track players that are playing well. Um, not just Juan Soto, but Bryce Harper and Victor Robles and Justin Upton going back to his Diamondbacks days. Uh, Carter Keboom, which didn't go so well, but Luis Garcia was, I think, the first player to homer who was born in the 2000s. So there's a definitely a holdover there that uh, they're not shy about pushing guys past maybe their initial timeline if they're if they're raking in the minors, and that's a that's some reason for excitement um, in terms of the major league roster coming out of camp. Yeah, I, I don't I don't have a great answer aside from the players we discussed, um, but. Yeah, stay tuned. (laughs) Stay tuned. (laughs) Well, there's the pitch. Get excited for the 2023 Washington Nationals. Well, we always end these segments by asking what would constitute success for that team, which is in some ways a more interesting question when we get out of the realm of, well, making the playoffs or winning the World Series or whatever. So what would constitute success? How do we gauge whether the Nationals made progress this year? Yeah, I I mean, I think with the new competitive balance rules with the draft. Like I, I, I hate that my answer, my first question is like, well, how high can they pick? Right. Because that's just such an annoying answer and it doesn't really get at what the real spirit of the sport should be. Uh, but with the new sort of anti-tanking, whatever you want to call them rules, they actually can't pick in the top three or five again. So I will say an actual on-field example, which would be like, let's say a eight to 10 win improvement um, would be, really good and I don't know if feasible but they lost 107 games last year the most in franchise history so that's a lot (laughs) that's a lot of losing and even though 
they looked a lot better after the Soto and Bell trade, not because of Soto was gone or Bell was gone, but because they improved a lot defensively and, and, and Joey Manessis hit really well. And the bullpen actually had a really good last two months of the season. They still played at the same win-loss pace, basically, that they did before. So it looked better, but it wasn't actually better in terms of the results. So I would say some marginal improvements would be good. It would be a success. The subtext of all that would be that the young players improve in a meaningful way and take steps forward in their development. I think that we talk a lot about the player development staff, but there's also a reason to you know put some pressure on the major league staff that that since they're getting guys so young and since the Nationals are graduating prospects at a really young age, it now becomes incumbent upon the major league staff to turn into a player development staff really and bring these guys along. That's that's Gray Cavalli or not Cavalli this year, but that's Gray and Gore and Garcia and Ruiz and Abrams. They're all now in the hands of the major league coaching staff, which has to function as a quasi-PD operation and make sure these guys are hitting the next step of their development in a effective way. So that's the main storyline of the season. But I'd say just in wins and losses, like let's say if they can get around or under the 100 loss mark, that would be improvement for me. All right. Well, if you weren't excited when this preview started, <laughs> the best case scenario, fewer than 100 losses. All right. Well, what are you going to do? You can follow Jesse Darty on Twitter at Darty underscore Jesse, and he will do his best to make the Nationals season engaging and exciting for you covering them at the Washington Post. Jesse, thank you very much. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right. Today's Pass Blast comes from 1983 and from David Lewis, an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. Do you remember over the offseason when we were doing our list of ways in which baseball is either unique or unusual among major sports? One of the many, many ways that we listed was that there don't seem to be a lot of live replays shown on video scoreboards. Maybe live replays <laughs> is an oxymoron, but not a lot of replays of particularly close, yeah. controversial calls shown on scoreboards. You see them, obviously, on TVs around the concourse, and sometimes you will hear a, a cheer or a boo or a groan go up as people see the replays on other screens. But typically, you don't tend to see it on the big board out there. And David is writing to us about perhaps why that is. So 1983, umps upset by video evidence. Mm. In May 1983, the crew umpiring a Pirates-Padres series took issue with the Pirates' newly installed video board showing replays of missed calls. The $6 million scoreboard, a new technology at the time, nearly caused the umpires to boycott the game. Umpire Bruce Fremming was quoted in a May 2nd, 1983 Philadelphia Daily News article as saying, That board's a disgrace. There's going to be a war with this thing. <laughs> he continued, It's not a circus. It's a ball game. These boards are designed to show good plays. That's brutal. That thing is a time bomb. That thing is a real menace. You're talking about injuries to umpires. Wow. According to the umpiring crew, players began to argue calls more frequently after seeing mm. video evidence that they believed proved their case. Crew chief Harry Wentelstadt boldly proclaimed, the next time we're going to shut down the board. And if they don't shut it down, we're going to sit down until they do. The umps caused such a fuss that the Pirates agreed replays of close calls would no longer be shown on the video board. When the Philadelphia Phillies unveiled their own new video scoreboard in June 1983, the team also vowed not to show any replays of controversial calls. MLB would not officially begin using instant replay to verify or overturn umpiring calls until the 2008 season. So, 
precedent was set, I suppose, pretty early on. (laughs) Umpires drew a line and said, this shall not stand. And they pressured people into no longer showing those close calls on the big board out there. So that could be why. That's got to be part of why, traditionally, we haven't really seen that type of call out there. Yeah. I mean... I feel like uh, now it's it's being mot- – whether they show um, a play on the board tends to be more about, like, someone being saying, yeah, the home team got what they wanted or didn't get what they want. Like, sometimes it'll go to replay review and they still don't show it on the big board, although often they do now. And then it doesn't mm-hmm. matter if the, the home team actually is getting what they want or not. Everyone's like, yeah, I see exactly what I want. Yay. <laughs> I guess, I mean, I understand from the umpire's perspective, they take a lot of abuse. Uh, There's certainly, in early baseball especially, there was a history of umpires being the objects of violence and fans tossing soda bottles at umpires and players heaping abuse on them, obviously. And I can see how having a replay of a missed call before there was any recourse, before you could review it, would just inflame passions, right? And if you didn't have a a mechanism where if they saw that they got the call wrong on the board, then they would reverse that call, then you can't even correct it. All you have is is just more abuse being hurled at them. So I see their point, certainly. From a spectator perspective, it's nice to see the close controversial calls, obviously, to be able to see whether it was right or not and satisfy your curiosity. But I might have felt the same way had I been an umpire. Yeah, I mean, I I imagine that um, they are aware that it doesn't matter. Maybe it's liberating for them because, like, on some level, it doesn't matter what they do. Even if they get the call right, they're still going to get booed because we mm-hmm. we want the call to be right, but we really want it to go well for us. <laughs> like right. That's yeah. that's that's actually the underlying criteria. Um, and all you have to do is watch. Um, uh, an umpire in a stadium with a robozone still get booed to realize we're just going to do a heap of use on them no matter what. Yeah. All right. And here are today's trivia answers. So the head-to-head record between the Yankees and the Nationals slash Expos. Not a lot of history here, but the Yankees are 21-17 and 17 all time against the Expo Nationals. And as for the players who have played for both franchises and distinguished themselves. So the batter with the highest career fan graphs were, who has spent any amount of time with these two teams, Ivan Rodriguez. Mm. He was a national and also a Yankee. You don't really remember him as being with either of those teams necessarily, but he was. And Tim Raines, maybe more memorably with those two teams, particularly the Expos, Greg Nettles, Alfonso Soriano, and Felipe Alou. As for the pitchers, number one, Randy Johnson mm. by a wide distance, followed by Javier Vasquez, Bartolo Colon, John Candelaria, and Rudy May. And then the first batters to have played for these two franchises, they completed the duo in 1971, Ron Swoboda and Ron Woods. And then as for the pitchers, both in 1970, Ken Johnson and Gary Wasluski. I'm recording this outro in the moments after the end of the Japan-Mexico semifinal, and I am 
giddy. That was one of the best games I've ever seen, I think. That was just one of the most entertaining games. We'll talk more about it next time. But man, just inject that directly into my veins. Roki Sasaki firing 101, 102, and easy 102 if there is such a thing. We get to see Yamamoto come in after him. Meanwhile, as great as Sasaki was, he gets outpitched by Patrick Sandoval, Jose Arquiti strong in relief, Randy Rosarena with the home run robbery slash stare, the greatest home run robbery reaction I've ever seen. So many great defensive plays beyond the home run robbery, incredible catches, well-executed bunts. God, that game had everything. Yoshida tying it up on just a ceiling scraping home run off the foul pole. Otani about as pumped as I've ever seen him, leading off the ninth with a double. Murakami with the redemption walk-off. We could just do a draft of moments from that game. It was that much fun. And I was so nervous. I didn't even really have a rooting interest. Of course, I'm always rooting for Otani on some level, but Mexico played such a good game, I was kind of pulling for them too. Plus, they have my man Joey Manessas, who, by the way, was thrown out at home plate. Of course, there was a play at the plate in this game too. Almost every exciting thing that could happen in a baseball game was represented in this one. And also just such a great range of styles and mechanics and bodies. We lament the lack of biodiversity in baseball sometimes. Not in this game, not in this tournament. It's just on the edge of my seat. That was like World Series level anxiety in mid-March. Absolutely incredible. I don't know how the regular season is supposed to top that. And I don't know how the final is supposed to top that. But I am hyped. USA, Japan, potentially Otani in relief. Baseball is so fun. The WBC is so fun. I'm a very happy man. We will talk all about that game and the final next time. And I can't wait to. My goodness, what a global advertisement for this sport that game was. And this entire tournament for that matter. We are finished with American League team previews. We still have four teams left, but they're all National League teams. Two team preview pods. We'll get to the Padres and the Reds later this week. But first, we will break down the end of the WBC and do some other fun stuff midweek. We are still soliciting theme songs from Effectively Wild listeners. Today's was from Harold Walker. Thank you, Harold. Send your theme songs to podcast at fangraphs.com. About a minute long, maybe 30 seconds or so of lyrics. For now, one follow up to episode 1981 when we talked about the Yankees' facial hair ban. We mentioned how maybe a player should have a beard clause in their contract that they get to keep the beard, that perhaps if some superstar were traded to the Yankees and insisted on keeping the beard, they could break the policy. Well, we did get an email from Andrew who pointed out, I was listening to that episode about players potentially declining to play for a team unless there was an exception made to that team's facial hair policy. And I remembered that Andrew Kashner did exactly this when he joined the Baltimore Orioles in 2018, who had a facial hair policy at the time, only well-manicured goatees at most. He sported a beard throughout his career, and John Mioli of the Baltimore Sun reported that Kashner would not have joined the Orioles if he had been required to lose his beard. However, ownership approved it, provided that it was kept tidy, and thus he signed with the Orioles. Even better, a Nesson article claims that Kashner had a beard clause in his contract when he signed with Baltimore, stating that he must be allowed to keep his beard no matter where he played. I just think it's a part of who I am and it's a part of my personality. It's just me, Kashner said. I think this length is kind of what it's supposed to be, I guess. Kashner was coming off a good season. I don't know if he would have been a big enough star to end the Yankees policy, but hey, he put his money where the hair surrounding his mouth was. Thank you, Andrew. And thanks to all of you who have helped support the podcast on Patreon, which you can do by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, get themselves access to some perks, and help us stay ad-free. Jacob Denny, 
Robert Walker, Daniel Watkins, Hari Narayanan, and Clemente. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, which has a great live game chat channel, ideal for following the WBC, or soon enough, MLB. You also get access to monthly bonus pods. As mentioned, Meg and I recorded and posted one this weekend. We talked all about Poker Face and The Last of Us. You can also get access to playoff live streams, as well as discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships and other goodies. Check it out, patreon.com slash effectively wild. You can contact us via the Patreon site if you are a supporter. If not, you can email us via podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash effectively wild. Next time, we'll talk more WBC and who knows what else. And thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We will be back to talk to you all soon. Hello and welcome to episode eight. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> that might have been a record for fastest screw up. All right, wowzers. Uh, let me uh, let me take that again. How about okay? What yeah. if I what if I just took it again? Let's try it. Okay.